kids who participate in family meals are eating more fruits and vegetables. They tend to have healthier eating patterns. We also have research that tells us they get better grades at school. They are taking fewer risks if they're teenagers. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, where healthcare professionals and health-minded consumers are provided with practical and helpful nutrition information on current and trending topics from subject matter experts. My name is Mary Purdy, and I'm an integrative eco-dietitian nutritionist based in Seattle, Washington. And we are talking about family mealtime today. And I was thinking about this, you know, I remember when I was a kid, growing up in New York City, actually. And we always had a family dinner together, no matter what. Like, I don't remember not having it. My my mom, my dad, my brother, we sat around the table. We talked about our day, no matter what it was, tuna casserole, a chicken and vegetables. And it was always felt like a real anchor, you know, to that to the day, whether it was a weekend or, or a weekday. We're speaking with registered dietitian Jill Castle, all about family mealtime. And in case you guys missed episode one, that was with Dr. Andrew Abraham, and we discussed his truly inspiring story as a cancer survivor and now uh, as the CEO and founder of Orgain and got some really wonderful insights into his expertise as an integrative medicine physician on the topics of immunity and inflammation. Our topic is the power of family mealtime, barriers, benefits, and strategies for eating together. And I got to say, this comes at a really great time because so many families have been eating more at home. And since the start of the pandemic, it's become a really important part of, I think, a lot of people's days. So we are excited to introduce a very special guest to share more on this topic. This is registered dietitian and one of the nation's premier childhood nutrition experts and also a member of the Oregon Nutrition Advisory Board, Jill Castle. So Jill is a sought-after speaker and media contributor, and in addition to serving as an advisor for Oregon, she also serves on the board of advisors of Parents Magazine. Jill is the creator of thenourishedchild.com, a parent nutrition education website, and is also the author of several books, including The Smart Mom's Guide Series, Eat Like a Champion, and Try New Food, and is also the co-author of Fearless Feeding, and she just happens to have her own podcast, The Nourished Child. Jill, welcome. So great to meet you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we just shared about your being an advisor for Oregon's newly established Nutrition Advisory Board. And as dietitians, we really love to see that Oregon and, and, and companies like that have created a credible board of dietitians to support initiatives and support products. So what inspired you to join the board? Well, first off, so impressed that they care enough to make sure there is credible advisors behind the product. So that really attracted me. And um, I love the story of Dr. Abrams. I love the fact that they have products for children that are really uh, conscientious about what goes in those products in terms of natural ingredients, even plant-based ingredients for families who might be pursuing a plant-based product. But, you know, families struggle feeding their children and we need companies to be on board as ambassadors and helpers to parents to better nourish their children. And I feel that Orgain really does a good job of that. Agreed. Well, th thanks for your input there. And and today's topic is is actually really interesting because it's all about family mealtime and the impact that this has on, on children's eating habits and also how that affects their nutritional intake all the way into adulthood. So I'm curious for you, what, uh, what sparked your interest in child uh, nutrition? 
I'd have to say it goes back to my internship uh, as a diet as a dietetic intern and doing my two week rotation on the pediatric ward, and that basically for listeners who might not know, as a registered dietitian, uh, many of us do a one year uh, clinical internship food service. It, it encapsulates a lot of different aspects of becoming a dietitian. And the clinical rotation is really working on the hospital floors with a variety of different patients. Many hospitals uh, at the time that I was an intern uh, have two-week pediatric rotation. So you get to dive in with children of all ages, all kinds of medical conditions, and manage their nutrition. And I think for me, I've always been drawn to children. It's why I have four of my own. I babysat a lot when I was a younger adolescent. Uh, but what what really struck me in my pediatric rotation was that children are not um, unlike adults in that they experience nearly every medical condition that an adult might experience. They experience cancer. They experience heart conditions. They experience diabetes. They have all kinds of um, medical conditions like adults. Yet, the difference is they still have to grow. They still are developing their food preferences. They still have nutrient requirements so that they have those strong, healthy bones and they've got smart brains when they grow up. And so for me, it was so fascinating to combine um, all this clinical management with nutrition and marry that with this pediatric population is constantly changing. Like the nutritional needs for a baby are so different from those of a toddler, which are different from a child and of a teen. And so the challenge uh, professionally and personally, and then the, uh, the, the joy of working with children who are so upfront and not manipulative for the most part, they're really just pure and sweet and you get a straight up answer and they're you're really helping them form their attitudes, their beliefs, their habits. There's just so much potential in working with children. And so that's what attracted me. I, I think I can understand why you've written a number of books on this topic. <laughs> Clearly, you've got a little passion in you around this. <laughs> I do. I do. And tell us more about the Nourished Child podcast. If you love kids this much, you've created an entire podcast. It'd be great to hear about maybe one of uh, a memorable moment or episode uh, in, in your podcast. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting over the course of my career, initially, I was so driven to be helping children. And then at some juncture, probably a decade or so ago, I realized that the power was really in the parent. And so I kind of shifted how I thought about my impact with families and the Nourish Child podcast and, and really everything that I've been doing for the last decade or so has really shifted to focus on parents. And so the podcast is all about, you know, making, uh, feeding and nourishing children easier. So that show airs every other week. So bi-monthly for the most part. And I toggle between um, just solo shows where I'm giving tips and tricks and practical solutions for parents to put into place in their own homes, or I'm uh, interviewing experts on a variety of topics. For example, I, I'm I have a show coming out on the infant microbiome pretty soon, and I'm in interviewing Julie Manella tomorrow about flavor preference development. So many interesting things that are going on in child nutrition that parents might not hear about. And I'm trying to bring those topics to them through the podcast. 
Nice. Well, there is no shortage of topics and uh, always love to hear about the microbiome. So I'll be uh, I'll be checking that one out for sure. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the word nourished and I want to understand um, and our listeners probably want to understand what does it actually mean for a child to be nourished? Is it the same as uh, being healthy? I, I guess you might liken it to being healthy. But when I think of nourished, I am thinking certainly physically nourished so that children grow and develop normally. But I'm also thinking about their social, emotional development, their cognitive development. I often say on the show, we are nourishing kids inside and out. I also want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to have confidence and um, have a good body image. So the show and sort of what I like to get after in my line of work is, you know, nourishing them all, all the organs on the inside, and but also their mental state, their emotional state when it comes to food and eating, uh, as well as, you know, optimizing their growth and their overall development. Yeah, it's such a nice holistic approach, um, really looking at that entire, all the different things that make up what a healthy child or nourished child could look like. And it sounds like you've got just incredible resources as well. Yeah, I, I think a lot of parents also get confused. They get stressed out about what's what's good for their kids and their specific nutritional needs, and they're trying to figure out this and that. And I'm curious if you have a a, a question that you hear a lot from parents uh, in your practice. I do. I have a couple of questions that I hear a lot. What's a healthy snack? And these are all food-related questions, and I would love to have different questions from parents because I feel like there are a lot bigger things we could bite off and talk about. But what's a healthy snack or how do I get my child to eat X, Y, or Z? Those are probably the two most common questions. And what I will say about them is that is it makes me recognize that that's where parents are at mentally. That's where their mindset is at. It's all about the food. And I think, again, going back to what I feel like I'm spending my career working on is broadening that conversation to include not just food, but to include, you know, what's the feeding experience like? What is your child experiencing at the dinner table? And I think we'll talk a little bit about that as we move on. But where is your child at developmentally? How is he feeling about himself? Where is he on the developmental curve? And how are you matching his developmental needs with food and eating? And so to me, there's a huge conversation when we talk about child nutrition, but where my where many parents are at is how do I get my child to eat this? And uh, what is the best food to yeah, feed my and, child? Yeah, I really appreciate that this idea of bringing in these other components of what it means to have a nourished child in there besides the, the the specific foods. But before we dive into that, that idea of being around the table together as a family, I know that a lot of people are concerned about the whole picky eating thing. So we hear that term a lot. Um, what do you feel like briefly are are some of the most important points in understanding picky eating and also managing it? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, I wrote a book on this topic. So there's like genetics has an influence, um, how children were fed early in life and how they were exposed to different flavors throughout their childhood has an influence. Uh, how you feed a child who tends to be picky. Do you use a lot of pressure? Do you use rewards? Do you use restriction, punishment, threats? All of those things are counterproductive. Where Again, I mentioned, where is your child developmentally? What's your personality? What's his personality like? Does he have a temperament that is, I'm going to push back every time you tell me to do something? Or is he more an, uh, an amenable child? I think for parents, 
what I try to tell them is, you know, the more you try to get your child to eat something, the less successful you're probably going to be. There's a lot of uh, less coercion and more cooperation is sort of the motto when it comes to picky eating and finding ways that you can connect with your child who might be picky about certain foods, but also as a parent, understanding that every child's on a learning curve when it comes to foods. And uh, some kids need more time on that learning curve than others. And you got to work with the child that you have and, and set them up for success. You know, um, exposures, cooperation, um, giving them self-control, letting them be autonomous, all of those things, which are really that social, emotional backbone to eating need to really be cultivated in parents. They need to have that understanding so they can be more cooperation, successful. collaboration instead of coercion. Very nice. And speaking of challenges, well, uh, the past year has been a big one, uh, right? But actually, there's been a lot of positives that we've seen come out of it as well. And that is, for many people, more family time. Now, I'll say that for not everybody loves the family time, but for many people, they do love it. And uh, that family time has actually, I think, strengthened a lot of relationships. And it's led to a lot of families feeling more close emotionally. And that may be a direct result of the simple act of just eating together. You know, my husband and I, we don't have kids, but the two of us do sit down for a meal almost every single night. And we really take that dedicated and intentional moment to think about our connection to our food. And that comes as expressing gratitude to everybody who brought that food from the seed to our plate. So the land, the growers, the harvesters, the people who transported it, the people who cooked it, which maybe was me or my husband or somebody else. Um, and so that really feels like a way to, to strengthen our own relationship to each other, to our meal, and to the food system overall. So share with us a little bit about the benefits of this family meal time. So there's actually been quite a few studies on family meal times and, you know, how frequently we should be having them, who we should be having them with. Overall, most of the research again, tells us what you just mentioned is that we are strengthening communication, cohesiveness, and connectedness amongst families when we bring everyone together around the table. That is under the, under the supposition that that environment is a positive environment, right? Because we can have family meals that can be very negative for children. And we don't want that. That's not going to, sh um, that's not going to necessarily uh, produce those benefits that we see in the literature. Some of the other sort of non-social emotional benefits that we see are things like uh, eating more fruits and vegetables. Kids who participate in family meals are eating more fruits and vegetables. They, they tend to have healthier eating patterns. Um, we also have research that tells us they get better grades at school. They they are taking fewer risks if they're teenagers. They are less inclined to have mental health issues. Again, a lot of the research around family meals suggests that not necessarily the more the better, but I think we can glean that the more the better is, um, is a good thing. What we know about frequency is about three times a week seems to be sort of that magical um, frequency that shows these types of benefits five times a week. There's literature that shows five times a week as well. I think where parents oftentimes uh, get a little confused is that they think that that meal has to be dinner time, and it doesn't have to be dinner time. It can be breakfast. It can be lunch. It can actually be sitting down with your children and having snack time with them. It's really the community 
uh, that happens around food, I think that is, is the most important part. And if you can have, um, that happy, positive vibe at the meal table several times a week, don't get hung up on gourmet dinners. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's really just coming together with your children. And, you know, a lot of things that happen around the table that are not quantified in the research is that your children learn their manners. If they don't sit at the table with an adult and see an adult eating and using their utensils and putting a napkin in their lap and pausing and and that social interaction of sharing food and sharing conversation, children don't get that learning unless they are sitting at a table with an adult. And so there are other benefits that we don't even quantify in the research so much. Well, it sounds like it has just exponential benefits that go way beyond just getting an extra green bean into a kid's mouth. And you mentioned three times a week, five times a week eating together. But what about the actual meal time? Like how long should parents want their kids to be sitting or expect their kids to be sitting at a table? What's, what's What would be optimal, do you feel like? Yeah, that's a good question. I usually say for an older child, somebody who's in school who, you know, can sit, 30 minutes is a reasonable expectation for older children. And for young children, preschool and younger, I usually say 20 minutes. You know, the attention span is shorter. And I guess I would also qualify that statement with the fact that, you know, you got to know your child and um, some children are, they just don't have the capacity to sit for 20 or 30 minutes. And so parents may be working on stretching out that time frame over time. But yeah, having those reasonable expectations is important for parents because if you have a toddler sitting for 30 minutes or 40 minutes for a mealtime, I guarantee it's not going to be a positive experience for that toddler. And so then, you know, parents need to really think about how their child is responding to sitting for long periods of time at the table. And that leads me to my next question too, which is how can we, how, or how can parents um, help to get their kids feeling more focused or less rushed at the mealtime, since that seems to be an area where people can either just rush through their meal in five minutes or have a really, really unfocused experience. What's your advice around that? I think keeping the conversation going, coming to the table as an adult with some questions in your back pocket, <laughs> some daily events, some standard, you know, sort of conversation starters that you can do with your children and calling out your child's name. I know that sounds so simple, but hey, Marty, how was your school day today? Like really being very direct to children that keeps them engaged and can keep them, you know, uh, sitting at the table for, for a little bit longer. Ask questions, talk about what happened in their day. Ask, uh, you know, would you do this or would you do that in this situation? There's lots of things that you can ask uh, and involve children with in terms of the conversation. Again, it, it goes to, you know, know your child. If this is going to feel punitive to your child, then it might not work. Uh, a sticker chart for sitting at the table might work for a child. So understanding the child that you're living with um, is very helpful. But yes, for preschoolers and toddlers, that timer, it's a very black and white uh, thing for them to uh, experience. And if you think about toddlers and preschoolers and even very young school age children, they're very black and white thinkers. So you, whatever techniques you use to extend that time at the table, you want it to match 
their cognitive abilities and the things that drive them. So developmentally, a young child is very, it's right or it's wrong, it's yes or it's no, it's black or white. And so a timer is very concrete, right? I got two more minutes and this thing's going off and I'm out of here, right? That's that's very easy for a toddler or a preschooler to to understand. Um, an older child might be more, more motivated by, you know, a star chart or a sticker chart or um, something along that line. And then as children get even older, just setting the boundaries. You don't have to eat at this table while you're here. If you don't want to, you don't have to, but you need to be here with us. This is a family event. Treating it like an event I think is a key as well. Uh, Not as a chore, not as a, I have to do this. This is such a drag. Um, It, you know, that, that parents feel that way. And I get it. Believe me, I had all four of my kids home for the pandemic for 11 months. Dinner got to be a drag. Making dinner got to be a drag, right? But I think there's a mental mind shift that can happen and just embracing that this is an event. This is a family event. So if you were going to a family wedding, uh, you would get all gussied up. You know, everybody would take it seriously. Everybody show up and be on their best behavior. Same thing for family dinner. Just it's an event. This is something we do most days of the week and. You know, we're all, this is the time we can all come together. Nice. And, and hopefully that's not with everybody on their cell phone. <laughs> there <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a, that's a boundary. <laughs> that's a big boundary. That's for yeah. adults as well. We've got all these benefits of eating together. And we also want to make sure that kids are hungry enough to actually eat at those mealtimes so they aren't overly distracted. Um, and snacking trends are really on the rise, especially since kids have been home a lot more often. I had a, a dear friend of mine say that one of her kids basically is looking for things to do and what's to do. Well, there's stacks in the kitchen. That's something to do, right? So what do you say to parents who are struggling with setting limits around those snack requests that uh, that come throughout the day? So I often in my work teach diplomatic feeding and diplomatic feeding is really based in setting up a structure, having boundaries and guiding your your child to make choices. So structure is really that timing and location of meals. So breakfast at eight, lunch at noon, dinner at six, and it's routine and it's an everyday occurrence. And there's, it's not negotiable. It's not a question of whether it's happening. It does happen every day. That's your routine. That's your structure around food and around eating. The boundaries are how you keep that structure in place. So the kitchen is closed. It's probably one of my favorite boundaries. My poor children learned that that slogan very early in their lives, and uh, they knew early on that we would have breakfast and the kitchen was closed until the next time to eat. So that basically means nobody comes into the kitchen to help themselves in the pantry, to help themselves in the refrigerator, that, that there's no eating going on during that closed Uh, period of time. And when we talk about sort of that structure of meals and snacks and um, uh, the timing in between, the two and a half hours to three or four hours in between meals and snacks, those are really physiological correct timings for most children. So it means that physiologically, they're not really getting hungry after having a meal for another two and a half to three hours. And so maintaining that sort of 
uh, space in between eating sessions really helps children tune in better to their appetites and eat in a regulated manner. But in order to uh, preserve those times in that space, we have to be strong with our boundaries. We have to have a system set up to um, encourage our children, ask first before you help yourself to any food, right? And you have to ask an adult. Um, we close the kitchen in between meals and snacks so that there's no roaming and foraging in the pantry and helping ourselves. So little boundaries like that really help children understand the system within the home. And when they understand the system, they operate better in it. Excellent. Well, this has been such a, this has been a feast, a veritable feast of information, Jill, uh, that I think parents and caretakers and folks who work with kids and maybe the kids themselves, if they're listening, are going to really, really, really enjoy uh, putting into play and practice. So uh, any final words about mealtime uh, and anything at all that you want to offer our our, uh, our listeners before we wrap up here? I would just say that, you know, at the end of the day, now being a mom of four grown children, at the end of the day, I can tell you what my children remember are those family meals, the hilarious laughter we would have at the table, the serious conversations we would have. Sometimes, you know, family sessions on we are resetting uh, boundaries or we are, you know, righting wrongs. We are apologizing for behavior. I mean, whatever family things would come up from really fun to uh, uh, really serious, mostly happened at the table. And that's what my kids remember. And I know that children who grow up in families where family meals are part of the routine do look back on those mealtimes. And and it's key to have those be pleasant um, mealtimes. They don't have to be a party every week, but they need to be pleasant and welcoming and uh, a warm, caring space for for children to grow up in. So I would just encourage all the listeners to do a family meal tonight. You heard it here, <laughs> folks. Family meals bring the family together. And hey, you might just solve a couple world problems around that dinner table. Thank you so much for your wonderful, thoughtful responses and time today, Jill. We've loved having you. You're so welcome. I've loved being here. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. That's it for now. Thanks so much.